Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. Mike Massimino, welcome back to the program. Bill, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. So that the, uh, the audience knows you're an American astronaut, you're an engineer, you're a professor at Columbia, and you're a senior advisor at the Trepid Museum in New York. My man, I don't know how you sleep. <laughs> I take a lot of naps. But, you're, but you, you have great charisma and energy <laughs> and an ability to simply explain really complex things. And that's, that's why we love you here at Fox, Mike. So thanks for coming back here. Uh, you're very kind, Bill. Thanks for having yeah, me. At, and, um, uh, very kind words. Thank, thank you, you, buddy. At the end, we're going to talk about Thanksgiving, but off to that in a moment. Yeah. So last right, about, about a week that. ago, the Russians like blew up one of their satellites, and yeah. they created all this space junk. It's it's hundreds of pieces, maybe it's thousands of pieces. When when you were in space, what, was space junk a concern of yours or others? Oh, absolutely, Bill. Uh, it was uh, especially after, and I, I flew on the space shuttle, and when we lost space shuttle Columbia, it, w- it was because of debris that came off the external tank during uh, during the launch. And so that debris came off, it put a hole in the wing of the space shuttle, and then when they tried to reenter two weeks after the launch to land, they, as they go through the atmosphere and build up friction, it gets really hot, like 5,000 degrees, and that hot, hot gas came in the wing and took it off, and we lost the crew, if you remember, back in, mm-hmm. uh, in, on February 1st, 2003. So what that did is, um, is it you know, heightened our awareness to things uh, damaging the thermal protection system uh, or damaging the, the, pressure, um, the pressure vessel, which is what keeps you alive. So, the, so it's kind of like... If you think of any of these, whether it's the space station or this or the space shuttle, the SpaceX vehicle, any of these things, they're, we call them pressure vessels because they're meant to hold pressure, meaning that they have to keep the air inside so that you can breathe and stay alive. And if there's a leak, then there's a breach in that vessel, and then the oxygen and the pressure goes away, and that, that's what's a problem. That's why they were worried about this debris strike. Mm-hmm. So we were certainly worried about it, not just on launch, because it also brought up what happens if something happens uh, in orbit? You can get hit by something on launch with the shuttle, especially was was a was a danger as we discovered, but also in orbit. And as more and more debris goes up there, is created, whether it's human made or uh, uh, micrometeorites coming in. There's more stuff around our planet orbiting now than there ever was, and it keeps increasing by by large amounts. And every one of those things that's up there could be an obstacle. And if you run into one of those the the worry when you're in orbit is that it could breach the pressure vessel mm. and then that means you know you have to take uh take action to uh to, to either solve the problem or abandon ship or whatever i, I have to think that that's like one of that. the that's like one of the biggest concerns of an astronaut correct when you're in space yeah i would say there's really um there's really like three things that 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 uh re- require immediate response and one is fire, you know, just like you would imagine on Earth. The other is if you um, 
if it, which wasn't necessarily uh, obvious to me at first, but it was caustic air. If something happens to the air you're breathing, if, if, an, if ammonia leak or something gets into the air where it's no longer safely breathable, then that requires immediate action because that can get you. And then the third thing was a, a rapid depressurization. Those are the three main things that really required rapid um, action because it could mean uh, injury or, or loss of life. And the other stuff you usually could sort out and figure out. But if one of those things happen, when one of them is the depress, then you're really worried. We were really concerned up at Hubble. There is actually more debris up at the Hubble altitude, which is about 100 miles higher than space station. So even though it's a, it's a higher altitude, you might think, well, there'll be less stuff there, but there's actually more because it's at a higher energy up there uh-huh. when it goes into those high orbits and it remains in those higher orbits for longer. So the, the debris can accumulate more than it will at the lower orbits. Well, so you're talking so the higher we were of, was a problem too. Instead yeah. of 250 miles above Earth, it's like 350 miles. 350, but that was a, that was a significant increase in the possibility of of hitting something. So, you know, we were very concerned about it. We inspected the vehicle right after launch. This became customary after the shuttle accident was to inspect right after launch and then inspect the vehicle midway through. We had a sensor package and a big giant boom, like a telephone pole that we put at the end of the robot arm to inspect things. And then at the end of the mission as well, we would do another inspection to make sure we were okay to come home mm-hmm. in case you picked anything up along the, so know, along the I, flight. So I'm going to come back to this Russia thing because I'm going to read you a quote from the NATO Secretary General, Hans Stoltenberg. Okay. He said, this was a reckless act by Russia to actually shoot down and destroy a satellite as part of a test of an anti-satellite weapons system. I, I know we've got an anti-satellite system. I, I don't know how advanced it is. But I, I've always thought, Mike, that that's... That's the way you win a future war. When you can defend your own satellites, it's game over. Uh, well, you got a good point. I mean, I don't know all the particulars about what the Russians did and, and you know, all the, um, all the details in it, but certainly things are vulnerable that are in orbit. Um, just like I mentioned, a spaceship can run into a piece of debris. So can a satellite. So can anything else that's up there. And whether it's human-made debris or micrometeorites, which are naturally occurring uh, pieces of material, mainly rocks and uh, meteorites that come into our atmosphere, if they're coming in quite quickly and if they run into whatever it is is up there, it can do a lot of damage. The speed is what it is. The speed that you're traveling in space, like my friends on the space station are traveling right now, 17,500 miles an hour. You run into anything going that fast, you're going to know about it. So even something really small can have a great effect on that. So uh, the thought of creating more debris when it's <laughs> when it's not needed, yeah, that's uh, th- that's certainly a problem. We everyone who has something in space needs to be um, a good citizen related to that and, and take care of it and and uh, try to consider what the what the bad outcomes might be if you uh, if you're not conscientious about it. Um, and then uh, as far as what you said, yeah, trying to keep uh, assets safe, whether that's a space station or that's a satellite or whatever it might be up there, certainly uh, those things are could could be uh, could be rendered useless with an impact. So uh, something you want to protect. So for it's sure. 17,500 miles an hour. You circle the Earth every 90 minutes. Is that right? Do I have that? Yes, okay. that's at the low. Yeah, the lower. Now, there is there are things that are even higher that um, that their orbital speed is actually at a higher energy, but they don't. They don't. They may stay at a geosynchronous position, which means they're always over the same part of the of the planet. 
Um, but they're at a much higher altitude to have that happen. So it all works out all the mechanics wise, but it's all, all, all that stuff up there to remain in orbit of our planet is going somewhere around that speed, which is, you know, of course, really fast. So, Mike, if you have ISS going at 17,500 miles an hour <clears throat> and you have space junk that doesn't travel at the same speed, is the ISS propelled into that orbit? Um, well, the way the ISS was is that it, the way we built it, we built it piece by piece, and and the Russians launched some modules, and uh, we, the United States, and our uh, the U.S. partners launched modules, like the Europeans, the Japanese, and the United States, and Canadians launched uh, modules on the on the space shuttle, and they were all put together. So that's how they were propelled to get up there. They were launched. Now that they're up there in the, the whole uh, system, which is which is Russian, by the way, too. I mean, there's, there's two halves pretty much to the space station, the Russian segment and the U.S. operating segment. Um, so uh, there's there's cosmonauts. And right now we have Americans, uh, we have Russian cosmonauts, mm-hmm. and we have a German astronaut up there. So it's multinational. It's yeah. not like it's just one country up there. But, uh, but the, it does have a little bit of propulsion in it uh, on board. And so they can fire thrusters to raise or lower their orbit if they need to, especially if they're trying to avoid something. So that's that's a possibility. But it's not such an, an easily maneuverable vehicle. Uh, the space station is quite large. The um, the inside volume of it's about the size of a of a seven forty seven. A huge aircraft is is that's the amount of living room you have in there. It's big for a spaceship, but the truss work where the solar arrays are end to end are about a hundred yards, like a football field. Uh, well, uh, long. It's huge, so that's not so easy uh, to maneuver that thing. They can lower and raise orbits, but if you try to do an avoidance maneuver, it's not so easy. Yeah. Last question on this: uh, If you're moving at seventeen thousand miles an hour, even hitting a something as simple as a bolt, oh yeah, that could cause enormous damage. Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, when uh, the, the the telescope that I uh, spacewalked on on my missions, there is a high gain antenna dish, pretty big antenna dish that has a hole in it about the size of a golf ball. So something came in and found it there. And in the 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 radiator on the wide field camera, which was one of the science instruments that we removed, that there it had an exposed radiator, meaning it radiated heat out to space, and it was this metal radiator that was curved that did that. And so things could hit it. It wasn't inside anything. It was exposed. And that thing looked like you know, someone took, took a BB gun to it or a shotgun. It was, had all these dents in it, all these little impact craters from uh, debris that it had run into or that came in and hit it on its way toward, uh, toward entering our atmosphere. Uh, so, yeah, uh, you try to account for that by keeping – they do track these things, but also you build your spaceship – so it can withstand impacts and impacts do happen. But what you're really worried about is the one that will get inside and damage the inner pressure vessel. And that's when you that's when you have a leak. Wow. And that's what you know. Wow. Really interesting stuff there. Well, let's hope for the best. Right. I mean, the Russians have done it. Yeah. Um, they've made a mess yeah. for a lot of people. And let's let's hope it all works out. Uh, the last yeah, no, this isn't, it's not good yeah, for yeah, sure. Not that cool. Not good. The, the last yeah. time we talked, we talked a lot about space tourism. Mm hmm. All right, so, you know, you got Musk doing his thing and Bezos doing his thing. Well, the one question I didn't ask you then is that would you do it if given the opportunity? Or is that just like a cheap thrill, been there, done that, and, you know, I've, I've felt the G-forces? 
No, I'd go again. Really? <laughs> I, would, I don't want to. I would love to go. I wouldn't want to pay all that money, though. I'm not, you know, I, that I wouldn't do. But Mike, um, this is just. So, I mean, you, yes. you, you've been up there for days and weeks at a time. Yeah, this is like seven minutes of your life. Why would you do it again? Well, um, as far as it depends when you mentioned, uh, like, for example, Elon Musk, that could mean more than just a you know, short trip in a parabolic flight. I mean, you, they go to orbit and they are starting to uh, there are going to be starting private astronaut missions coming up starting uh, starting in January. So that's going to be another option for people. What we've seen so far, like with Jeff Bezos and um and Richard Branson going into space, those were suborbital flights. They didn't make it to orbit. And we mentioned the orbital speed is 17,500 miles an hour. But if you remember, Bill, the Inspiration 4 flight, which we talked about that happened, I guess, a couple months ago now, those were four people who were not trained astronauts who paid a lot of money. At least one guy did and treated everybody else, I think, the four people that went for St. Jude's Hospital Awareness. They did not go to the space station, but they went into orbit for, for four days so uh, it's not just a, it can, it can be more than just a four minute thing ah, it, gotcha. or seven minutes or whatever it ends up being. It could also be an orbital trip. I think eventually those will become more common. Uh, you know, we've already, we saw that one with that Inspiration 4 flight. I think we're going to see more, I would expect next year. Uh, it could be more than that. I, I think though, you know, d- depending on it, you know, for me, Bill, it's kind of like, it's not necessarily the amount of time, it's, it's the experience, but it's also the investment in going there. So as an astronaut, you spend, as a NASA astronaut, you spend years for that one space flight and then more years for the first one and then a bunch more years for the next one. You know, I was an astronaut. It was six, it was four years. I was selected in 96. I was assigned to my first flight in 2000 and I flew in 2002. Then we had the accident we described, which I think slowed things down. And I, I, I wasn't assigned again uh, until 2006. And then I flew again in 2009. So, you know, those are years that go by of training and waiting and, and getting ready. And w- even once you're assigned, it takes a long, it took a long time to go to get ready to go. That's been shortened a lot by the, uh, by the automation involved. So it's more like a few months of training on how to do the spaceship and then what else you're going to do. So it's not as, um, I guess the, what I was saying, the, the way I look at it is that the cost of doing that, it's gone down mm-hmm. because the time cost has gone down. So you know, heck, you know, this thing yeah. that they do with, with Blue Origin, you know, it's you, know, you as long as you get, it's kind of like an amusement park ride. You walk to right. the top of the tower and you get on, you know, uh, so that, you know, that I'll, I'll do that. It's That's only good. A it's, days. Like, it's like Long Island, you know? New York, isn't it, in the summertime? Yeah, it's just, hey, it's just like, yeah, it's just like exactly what think, it is. Yeah. Who do you think has the edge right now? Uh, I, I, I think it's it's hard to say. I um, I think they all have their advantages. If we talk about if I guess you're talking about like, the Blue Origin, yeah, Jeff Bezos, they, they kind of do different Elon things. Musk, is your point, Richard Brand, yeah, Richard Branson with Virgin Galactic. I think they all they all certainly have their own uh, their own advantages, I, and I don't think that they're necessarily competitive. And I think we're going to keep learning more and more. I think what what's been amazing is how uh, uh, SpaceX has gotten people to orbit now pretty consistently over the past few years, and. They're able to get more people into space. The training time has gone down. And as far as going to orbit right now, SpaceX certainly is is doing really well. They're the only ones that have done that. The suborbital flights uh, that uh, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos have accomplished, you know, Jeff Bezos, uh, Richard Branson rather, is, uh, is uh, taking off and landing from a runway. So they have 
that part of it, maybe one day it might lead to, to jet travel or, you know, I should say, not sorry, jet travel, but rocket travel going from point to point. But Jeff Bezos has got kind of, um, I think, a very, very uh, solid long range plan where he's been successful with these suborbital flights, not just with people, but also with um, with experiments on board. And uh, he is building a big facility out at the Kennedy Space Center and tooling up to also get into the orbital game with a spaceship called New Glenn. So I think it's it's uh, it's very exciting. And as far as who's ahead or who's behind, uh, I think they're all doing really well. Um, I think getting people to orbit, that was accomplished by Elon Musk, but I don't think Jeff Bezos is going to be far behind. Yeah, it's interesting. Bezos kind of kept the lid on everything until he actually had his launch and we're like, whoa, check, <laughs> look what he's yeah, been building. Right, surprise. <laughs> right I think, I think it's, it's also, I think, because he's, I, I think he's just being, uh, I, uh, he was a little more quiet about it, making I agree. sure things work. Yeah. And uh, I think also he's, he's, he's privately funded from, from what I know. A lot of it comes from the, the money in Amazon or whatever that money is, that, that source of funding. Whereas with SpaceX, they have been winning government contracts for a long time. They started sending um, cargo to uh, to the International Space Station with the cargo version of the Dragon spacecraft years ago, and they they did that under government funding, and I think mm-hmm. there was also funding from from SpaceX, Elon Musk, and and other uh, investors. Musk maybe. always but like he he always it was put a, a big NASA project. What's yeah, he that? always put a camera on everything, so we we were kind of updated. Yes. But Bezos was like, right. "Hey man, I'm pulling the curtain down. Check out what I just made." Um, yeah, yeah, I think. I think he was a little more quiet. I think he was able to. I mean, when it's a government project, generally part of it is justifying the taxpayers' dollars that are being invested. So I think part of that also was part of the, the issue with SpaceX is that it's a government project. You know, it's so, so we heard about it that way. But I think also there, it seems that they're also in the culture and their approach that Bezos was a, a little more quiet about yep, things until it. he really had something to show. Let's pause right there. More Hammer Time after this. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Okay, so another issue here. I, I think the government, speaking about pulling back the curtain, the government has made a very public shift, I think, in how we view, it views... UFOs. (laughs) UFOs. <laughs> and uh-huh. the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, quoted recently, there's always the question of, is there something else that we simply do not understand that might come extraterrestrially? I, you know, Mike, for so long that our, our government shied away from this area. Now we know we're looking at it. How much consideration have you given it? It depends what you mean, Bill. I think, that, like, in other words, there are things that are flying around our planet that we can we know what they are. You know, a, a Delta airline flight is coming into New York City. We know what that thing is, or it's a small airplane, or it's a it's a balloon, or a kite, or, or you know, or a drone. And we all right, we know what that is. And then there are things that uh, that they they know what they are, but maybe they can't say something about it. I don't know anything about this, but it could be some things are classified. For example, we don't know what they are. And then there are some things we don't know what they are. You know, these pilots are reporting things that they don't know what this is or that is, and it's moving this way or that. But just because they don't know what it is doesn't mean it's E.T. coming to say hi uh-huh. and or take a look without saying hi, right? Sneaking around, taking pictures. That doesn't mean that at all. So I think it's quite a leap to say that, well, we don't understand what that is, so therefore it's coming from another another place. Uh, it's, it's We're being visited. So I... 
there's as far as I know, uh, and I don't see how we would not find out about this. There is no evidence that we are being visited. That doesn't mean that there's not life out there. I think one thing we learned with Hubble, billions of galaxies with billions of stars in each and planets around most of those stars. In fact, most of those stars have multiple planets orbiting so that the chances are there there is something else out there. Life, life it probably is somewhere else out there, I think. Um, but we just haven't found uh, found it yet, and you, I don't you, think anyone has found us. Do your students at Columbia are are they interested in this? Do they ask you about it, or not so? Much? In the UFOs? Yeah, not real. I mean, I think they're you know usually uh, you know in academics, I think it. Well, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but you kind of deal with reality. I don't can't believe I'm actually saying that about academics, but. You know, you kind of deal with what, you know, the, the facts and the proof. And it's not necessarily, uh, it's not, I mean, they may ask about it, but it's not from the, you know, the conspiracy part of it. Oh, you know, we're being visited and the government's not telling us, blah, blah, blah. Generally, that doesn't come up. Uh, you also don't hear from them, like, is the world flat? Usually I get those questions when I'm out, outside the classroom somewhere else. Like, so like I, here. I, yeah, but I don't, not too much from the, from them, from my students, no. Well. Hey, listen. Maybe they're scared to ask me because I might, I might say, really, what are you doing at this school? Asking these types uh-huh. of things. But I think the UFO one is kind of interesting because it keeps coming up and what could it be? But again, just, just because it's, we don't know what it is doesn't mean it's something extraordinary. And I heard someone say, some, uh, I forget who it was, but I don't know if it was when I was in school or someplace, but for, for normal claims, you need normal evidence. For extraordinary claims, you need extraordinary evidence. So to say that something is an alien spaceship or you know, something like that, we really need extraordinary evidence. I think most of these things can be explained, um, and those that can't, we, we don't know what they are, and, uh, that, but that doesn't mean it's something extraordinary. Yeah. Right. Well stated, by the way, too. Hey, listen, it is always a pleasure to speak with you. What are you doing for Thanksgiving, yeah. by the way? Like, what's what's your big tradition for Massimino? Well, we eat a lot as an Italian family, <laughs> but we're going to be, you know, my kids, my kids will be coming over and my wife and my sister and my kids, we're going to be celebrating here in New York. I think we're going to go see the parade. Friends of ours just got a, a, a nice place to view the parade down on the parade route. They nice. Nice. Where, where is that, by the way? I think of having people over. <laughs> you want to come over? I'll have to give you the address. Ah, thank you, brother. I'm going to be in, I'm going to be in Ohio. No. How many okay. times have you seen the Thanksgiving Day Parade being a New Yorker? Not, you know, I know that much. I lived in Texas for a very long time. And, uh, you know, my, my, my father worked, you know, he worked for the fire department and his idea of a, of a holiday was to stay home. Not even to get on the subway. So uh, I think I saw it maybe once before I moved to Texas and maybe once while I was there. So to answer your question, I think maybe a grand total of five times. Wow. And yeah. it's been, but it's been three times. But I've moved back to New York after NASA about, well, how long has it been? Uh, about eight years ago. And I guess I've seen it maybe, uh, maybe, uh, f- maybe four times since I've moved back. And well, if I really you, love it. It's, it's just really a great day. If, if you get good weather that day, it, it is very yeah. enjoyable. I agree. I, I've seen it a handful of yeah. times here. And I, I mean, for people listening, the the secret way of seeing the Thanksgiving Day Parade mm-hmm. is to go to the Natural History Museum the night before. Because yeah. the night yeah. before is when they're filling all the air up into the balloons yep. and they're blowing them up. And I mean, you've done that before. I have. Yeah. The Wednesday night before they've got all those balloons. The Natural History Museum was nice enough to invite me to watch from their steps, watch the parade, which is very nice. But the parade doesn't start until after the, or at least I don't know what the route is now, but the the parade itself used to start just a few blocks south of the museum. But yes, going to see the balloons the night before, the inflation of the balloons right around the museum, 
that is something to do that's open to everybody. And uh, now that you've mentioned it to all the people that listen to you, it's probably going to be crowded. But uh, but it's definitely it's definitely worth it. And you you walk through it. It's a moving it's a moving crowd. Yeah, it's not like in a parade where people get one place and they camp out. It's packed. It's crowded. It's packed, but. But they, but they move. The, the line yeah. moves to see the, the balloon, so Love it's it. doable. Hey, listen, yeah. man, I, as I like to say, I hope you get a drumstick, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> Have a great time with thanks, your family. Thanks, you too. Thank, thanks for having me. You Happy bet. Thanksgiving. Thank you, man. And we will speak sometime between now and the new year, and who knows what's coming our way at 17,500 miles an hour. You never know. Thank you, you Mike. Never know. All right, buddy. You got it. Mike Massimino, Intrepid Museum in New York, professor at Columbia, American astronaut and engineer. He does everything. Thanks, Mike. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.